So we are um, we're coming to a conclusion of our look at the beginning of life issues. Um, today we're going to talk about abortion. Last year I had two classes on abortion, one in kind of the arguments against it, and then I had someone come and speak about the politics of abortion. Uh, but as you all hopefully know, the politics of abortion, the landscape has shifted a bit since this time last year, for the good, I think, certainly with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, so I, I don't think I really need to go over with you why abortion is wrong. Uh, I'll make a few very brief comments, but I really would like to have a, a discussion about what as a, a society and as a church and that you as priests or God willing future priests can do um, in the future to be able to promote a culture of life and to work to hopefully um, curtail the spread of abortion in our culture. So, Kay, I mean, the, the teaching is pretty clear, um, even though, let's put it this way, this is not a religious argument, okay? I mean, this is well, you, you can't impose your religious beliefs on me. This has nothing to do with my Catholic faith. If indeed that, that, that child in your womb is an individual member of the human species, then it has equal dignity to others who are also members of the human species, regardless of the moral status or whatever you want to call it. And so it has a right to life. So regardless if you are taking that life inside of the womb or outside of the womb, it doesn't matter. It is the deliberate taking of an innocent human life. And it is a most serious sin. Catechism speaks about it. Uh, paragraph 2272. Formal cooperation in an abortion constitutes a grave offense. Normally a formal cooperation. You, you think it's a good thing, you're participating in it. And um, of course that's where in this section it also talks about mercy. But what I, I think that we have to, to look at, or at least what I like to address from my own perspective, we know the impact it has on the child, we know the impact it has on the mother, but what about the impact abortion has on a society or a culture? Um, and particularly, just the sheer number of abortions. And I don't even know if we can fully like estimate, because so many people who choose to have abortions, again, the culpability, I would imagine, in many cases, might be low. But the WHO, the World Health Organization, do you know what they, what, how many estimates they give year world globally, how many abortions a year? 40 to 50 million. You know, well, just get you, wrap your mind around that. Wrap your mind around that. <clears throat> and, and so for, for me, I think one of the most convincing arguments is, is abortion is a social justice issue. And not only is it a, a right to life issue, but there's a social dimension to this. You have this violence perpetrated against the most vulnerable and defenseless population. That, that very famous quote from Mother Teresa, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child murdered by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can 
kill even our own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching the people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. That is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. Think about that. It does. It's going to have to have a ripple effect. Then you could also, of course, connect it to the eugenics movement, Margaret Sanger, and the origins of Planned Parenthood, and go do your own research to see where abortion clinics tend to be placed, the connection of international funding in the UN, in the developing world. Uh, There's some scandalous stuff going on. Ratzinger will argue that it is a threat to democracy. He'll say this is why every legalization of abortion implies the idea that law is based in power. That's the case. Uh, The state claims the prerogative of defining who is and who is not the subject of rights, and that consequently accepts that some persons have the right to violate the fundamental right of life of other persons, contradicts the democratic ideal although it claims to appeal to the, uh, it continues to appeal to this claim. Such a state imperils the very basis on which it governs, for when it accepts that the rights of the weakest may be violated, it also accepts that the law of the jungle prevails over the rule of law. So I've been reading some stuff on um, this idea of human dignity as inherent to us as humans, versus that whole idea of moral status and degradation. And the, 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 the person I'm reading, and I may make this essay available to you if I, can, if I finish it and I think it ends well, is that, yeah, not only do we, talk, we discuss like the, the, the difference of human dignity, but we also sort of get, if all of a sudden there is a certain subset of people who are human beings who have a different moral status, what we're impacting are not only human rights, but a concept of human equality. All humans are not equal. We're not equal. And I think in a culture where we value equality and egalitarianism, if all of a sudden there are certain subsets of humans who are less than human or somehow have fewer rights, what does it tell us about equality? What does it tell us about democracy? Jump all the second. Of course, sounding like he he uh, belongs on uh, Alex Jones calls it a conspiracy against life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. John Paul II does not belong on Alex Jones. But he says it's true. But it's true. Though. Like, if you look at the facts, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But in, in number 17 of Evangelium Vitae, we are in fact faced with an objective conspiracy against life involving even international institutions engaged in encouraging and carrying out actual campaigns to make contraception, sterilization, and abortion widely available. You look at it, how they want to promote this as the ultimate good. It's very difficult to deny uh, or to argue against that there's some type of conspiracy against life. So I, I think we have to look at it on a social justice level. But also, I think we have to look at the concept of rhetoric and how we talk about this. You notice uh, I've been involved in the pro-life movement since the mid to late 80s when I was in high school. And 
I've seen how the rhetoric over the years has changed. Do you know what the first the first thing that, that was they were really one of the first things they promoted for abortion? We want abortion, but we want it to be safe and rare. Really? And then you began moving in the 80s and 90s to pro-choice. We want to be pro-choice. My question always was, what are you choosing? I'm pro-choice. I think people should be able to choose things. But there's a difference between choosing between Pepsi and Coke and killing your baby and not. So let's just say that you are in favor of women killing the children in their womb. That's what you're pro-choice of. That's what you're in favor of. Let's, let's be specific about our language. But then we kind of moved away from that, and the argument was, it's my body. A woman has a right to do what she wants with her body. Well, is it really your body? It has a completely different genetic structure than you do. It doesn't. It may be attached to your body, but it's not your body. And then, uh, you know, you, you move now to um, this idea of reproductive rights. That's what, that's what it is. It's all about reproductive rights. We're framing it in a very, uh, a very direct way of people who are against reproductive rights and people who are for reproductive rights. How could you be against reproductive rights? Because you're ultimately anti-woman. Uh, what I, I think is, is really interesting, too, is that in some sections of the pro-abortion movement, they don't even deny that it's a child. Yes, it is clearly a child. If you saw the article that I put there from this woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams from about eight, nine years ago, so what if an abortion ends a life? She says, yeah, well, let's say it's a life, but the woman has autonomy. Her life matters more. Her life and what is right for her circumstances, she says, and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, always. So if you're non-autonomous, does it mean that an autonomous individual can always trump your rights or as long as it exists in your womb? There's no logic here. But at least for, for me, they're being honest. Uh, you know, we're there trying to couch it in some kind of fancy language or rhetoric. But now, like, you're, you're seeing, though, this promotion of abortion is a good, and the thing now is my abortion story. Have you all seen this website or anything? Getting, my abortion story. I had these abortions, and my life is better. And the, the lady who does uh, AT&T, the little, the little lady, what's her name? Yeah. Milano, whatever, something. She has an abortion story. Everybody has an abortion story. But it's being promoted as a good, as a way to exercise rights. And, of course, language is power. And so that's the question that I have for the pro-life side. What, what, how, how aware are we of the manipulation of language? Uh, and what are we doing to combat that and to be very specific in the way that we use our language and engaging in the debate? Now, of course, the real question is, do, can we win this debate? Can you reason someone out of abortion? You know, I, I just don't know. So, rarely, but it, it's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. You might plant seeds for people to start thinking about it, but it's a challenge. But then now we have the question of, do we talk about abortion too much as Catholics? 
should be talking about that. I, I, I disagree with that, but, you know, and this whole idea of the, the seamless garment and there are all these life issues. Well, I think there's a validity to that, that we can bring in some of those arguments to say that abortion is the same as the other ones. I, I think we'd be very hard pressed. I, I don't, th- granted, we need to care for the, the poor and the, the migrants, but there's a difference between, no one is saying, let's murder all the migrants. Let's go do that. Let's go kill all the poor. No, they may not be doing the best thing for the poor, the immigrants, but here, hey, let's let women kill their children. This is a great thing. It's two different things. And if you can't see that, I wonder, are you just really ignorant? Are you deliberately trying not to see it? Um, now, granted, how do, we, how do we engage these discussions? We'll talk about it a little bit later on. Now, here's something interesting. One of the questions I always want to ask is, who is having abortions? Who's have, who, wh- wh- what demographic is having abortions? And so I did some research, and, and I think you can find different people giving different stats. I want to go with the Guttermacher. These are the people who are, we love abortion. They, uh, and this is from the New York Times article in 2021. So no one can say that, well, this poll is, is geared towards pro-lifers. So... This is the research that they gave, and I didn't do uh, the, the, the results they gave, and I didn't do a lot of detail work about you know how accurate it is. But it says that the typical patient, in addition to already having children, so most abortion, people who choose abortion already have children, is poor, is unmarried and in her late 20s, has some college education, and is very early in pregnancy. But in the reproductive lives of women, here, once again, the way that the Times is phrasing this, and transgender and non-binary people who can become pregnant, we have to add that in there. Across America, abortion is not uncommon. The latest estimate from the Guttemacher Institute, a reproductive health research group that supports abortion rights, found that 25% of women will have an abortion by the end of their childbearing years. That's a pretty shocking statistic. 25% of women will have an abortion by the end of their childbearing years. Is this the United States? Uh, yes, it is. It's the Guttemacher, yeah. So you can look at it. Many of them have already had children. So this is their second or potentially their second or third abortion. But for me, the key is, and what I've read, is poverty. About half of women who have had an abortion in 2014 were below the poverty line, with another quarter very close to poverty. Granted, wealthy women are having abortions, and maybe they're not talking about it. But the fact is, Guttemacher surveys show low-income women have been a growing share of abortion patients in recent decades. Now, they say that it's because they don't have as effective contraception as the higher-earning women and recognition of the growing cost of raising children amongst poor women. So, granted, I believe the case is, yes, wealthy women are having abortions, but if this is the case, and particularly because quite often they put abortion clinics, like I was surprised, I don't mean to, there's research that goes into this. 
when they put the Chick-fil-A right there on the end of uh, Carrollton, uh, granted it's right off the interstate, but it, it doesn't look like a place everybody wants to go to Chick-fil-A. But if you've driven in front of it, boy, there's a line out there. There's research that goes into this. A lot of these abortion clinics are not, you know, in downtown Manhattan. They're in poorer areas. They know their demographic. And, and so we've got to ask ourselves, and for me, this is the real, the real issue, if we can talk about combating poverty and having legitimate ways of, of reaching poor women who, who find themselves in situations where they believe they cannot raise their children, many of them are not married, well then what can we, if we do that, then can we somehow also reduce abortion? Yeah, I heard this really great um, uh, talk by this uh, black Baptist preacher in New Orleans that once said, it was about who's big anti-abortion, kind of, and he was, he, was, he was talking about how a statistic they keep kind of down, they downplay is that how many, at least in cities where they have like a large African-American community, like how many of the abortions are African-Americans and how they use it as like, because they're typically lower income and and seen as like you know like crime, like you know part of a part of some crime how, how they use this to like basically genocide them and he was saying like they they promote this in our communities because you know we're lower income they see us like problem that it's, it's racism I think that's a pretty good art like and they downplay that statistic in like all the polls because they don't want to say like oh, they put them in black neighborhoods to, to wipe out you know no and if you go back to, they'll say well we we've We've distanced ourselves from Margaret Sanger's objectives. I don't know about that. Uh, regardless, though, I think like, this, is, this is the tactic. Well, the, you have the pro-life people who tend to care about life, and you have the social justice people who care about fighting poverty. Can we work together on this? Can we work together on this? Can we say, like, hey, we care about poverty, and I know you don't think abortion – hopefully you don't think abortion is a good thing – what can we do to combat poverty, particularly amongst minority women, single mothers, in order to be able to bring this down? And what are some of the ways that we can do it instead of, instead of the infighting? Now, we can think about what we want, but when we look at what is behind abortion, why is abortion so prolific, this makes it difficult. I mean, I think there certainly is an agenda, the conspiracy against life. There is a connection to contraception. You're going to promote contraception. Look, there's no 100% effective ways of contracepting. This is not. Even if you take the pill, you can forget, or the IUD won't work. And so if you don't want a kid, then what's your option? Abortion is. So they're intimately connected. But what's the main reason that abortion proliferates and that you'd have a hard time fighting against it. Money. Money. It makes a lot of money. I mean, this is from the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Now, this is a anti-abortion institute. From their 2019-2020 um, annual report looking at Pan Planned Parenthood, uh, in 2019-2020, Planned Parenthood reported that this is what Planned Parenthood reports, 1.6 billion in income and over $2 billion in net assets. Plus, they get taxpayer funding. And so Planned Parenthood's excess of total revenue over total expenses is $69.7 million. Again, you know, you're making a lot of money here. 
And let's just not even connect it to this is just Planned Parenthood. What about other organizations, the way that this is all connected? There is an industry here that is connected to the contraception industry, connected to a lot of different things. And then you promote this internationally. Um, there's money to be made. And so we're going to have to learn how to sort of fight against that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the profit that you make now, granted, I, I I didn't look at the report. Is it is it 110 million just in the U.S. or nationwide? Like okay, Sasol and Lake Charles, they, they just invested in 2015. They invested 26 billion dollars in capital money mm-hmm. to build a syn gas plant. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's just, that's just business as usual. Somebody's doing that. My point is, I don't think it's money. I think it's, I think it's also, I think there's sex addiction. I think there's terrible cultural. I mean, it's, but the money thing is, money's always an instrument. Is my point. Oh, I don't. That's why I say I don't think it's one thing. I think you could reduce it to money. I think it's ideology. I think it's money. I think it's power. Yeah. I mean, th- there's political power here. Um, No, you're right, and, and but the thing is, it's an internet. It's so I don't know. It's kind of maybe like, hey, you look at a sports figure who makes two million dollars a year. Well, they're also making a lot of other stuff from endorsements that you don't see. So you may be looking at the profits that Planned Parenthood is connecting here. But what about all these ancillary things of the tax, the taxpayers, government grants, contracts, and Medicaid reimbursements? Uh, hit $618 million. So it's a lot of money. So where is all this coming from? What's not being reported? Granted, it's not in the billions of dollars, but you also have, and I think this is when it comes down to it, outside of money, outside of political influence, outside of whatever. And I, I do recognize, yes, there are organizations that make a lot more money. What and I don't mean to like sound crazy, but abortion. Let's say this. Let's say that it's you're correct. It doesn't make a lot of money. Then why do the progressives tend to not only hold on to this so much, but promote it so much? Yeah, you can get your endorsements, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but I also like what I really, I really think you hear it all the time. There's in the in the media, they're always talking about population control. There's too many people. They're they're always talking about that, and everything they do is centered around like there's too many people doing this or that. Or people are always harming the world in anything they do, whether it's like big gulps or like. <laughs> they're living together in you know, a community. Like, Super it's just, and people are like always this problem. And there's like this, it's gotta be demonic, but like there's just this. That's my, that's my point. Yeah. I, 
Abortion is the abortion is the sacrament of the left, of the progressive. I, I, I read that somewhere. Abortion is their sacrament. This is the holy of holies, and and like just like maybe why are you Catholics are so hold on to this little piece of bread, this Eucharist? It doesn't make any sense because it's the holy of holies, and then you can even notice the language. This is my body. Um, you know, th- there, there are connections there. I mean, you could bring in Moloch, you could bring in all that. I, I, again, there is a spiritual dimension to this. I think there's a political dimension, a physical, financial dimension, all kinds of stuff, but we got to realize that there are connections. So, outside of all that, this is what I want to focus on for the rest, most of the time that we have, which we, look, I'm cutting it almost perfect. Post-Roe versus Wade. We could sit and discuss all the origins of it. We could talk about these different things. Abortion in the U.S., we're not talking about internationally here, has been returned to the states. I, I, I flew into D.C. the day it was overturned. So I, I was flying into D.C., and I remember I landed, and my phone ex- was exploded because there was nothing. And so I said, oh, I'm going to walk around the city. And I went to the... the um, I, didn't, I took my collar off, but <laughs> I walked to the Supreme Court. That that and it, you were not going to reason with the people there, uh, and so just to watch it and like the the intensity, very very angry. Like if you'd gone there and you thought like, hey, saying bleep a, and insert a Supreme Court judge's name was some type of effective argument, you know. <laughs> Like, like ad hominem was on the display right there. And then what I did is I came back later, like the next day, and just listened to some of the discussions. There was no reason. And, and a lot of really disaffected, broken people there. A lot of angry, disaffected, broken people, which makes me think that, that hey, what's your story? But one of the things, though, that we can talk about what it's going to look like or what do we do moving forward Yes, it's moved back to the states, and there are even states that you wouldn't expect that seem to be very red and very pro-life when it was put to the vote uh, this year. Like I was in Kansas, I believe. Even the red states wanted abortion. They have a strong lobby. They have people who have convinced this is a good thing. Um, we've got a, a – and as we talked about, there are a lot of Catholics that you thought were pro-life, but all of a sudden – you see them overturn Roe versus Wade, and you realize we still have a lot of work to do. Outside of the ideological work, the real struggle is that regardless of what happens in state levels, the norm now is going to become the mifeprestone, the abortion pill. So now it's abortion at home. The M-I-F-E-R-E-P-R-E-S-T-O-N-E, mifeprestone. Basically, you take these two pills that induce an abortion. There is another pill that you can take midway to put an influx of estrogen to stop the abortion, but it basically just flushes everything out. And states are trying to stop, um, you know, selling it. But on the internet, you can get you can get away with it. What is it going to be like having abortions at home? The health risks that are going to happen. I, it, it can be a, become very, very complicated. 
So I think that's one of the things we have to see that even if they didn't overturn Roe versus Wade, it's been moving in this direction anyhow. How are we going to deal with the abortion pill and, and what might happen at home? Um, I don't know. So what do we do moving forward? I'm going to throw uh, some arguments out. One of the things that I think I posted or may have posted on the optional readings is if we, we're going to work to change people's minds, we're going to work to help those affected by abortion, but we need to reduce the demand for it. So again, it's there. It's kind of like the whole thing with smoking. You know, very gradually people, now of course I haven't convinced everybody at Notre Dame Seminary about this yet, but you know, gradually we realized, oh, hey, Philip Morris and them, they're making a lot of money off of it. There's a lot of political power and it's not good for you. We're gonna show you some pictures of your lungs, all gross looking. Um, and then over time, things began to change. The, the re, they reduced the demands where people don't really, there's not much of a demand for cigarettes anymore. In some places it, it is, but you know, in general, it's not like it used to be. So what can we do to reduce the demand for it? Now, the thing is, it, it can't just be private institutions. Um, because to, to reduce the demand to do what needs to be done, it's going to take a lot of money. So they're going to, there can be private initiatives, education on what abortion is, the use of mass media and social media. One of the suggestions is fatherhood initiatives. Women are much less likely to have abortions if there's a father president. Pregnancy centers like we have. Yes. You, Okay, churches, of course, preaching and teaching, support women in the community, and there are groups like Her Plan and Louisiana Right to Life, but it's going to take a lot of money uh, from states to be able to do this, um, and state initiatives and funding. So I don't know if you all have seen Texas Alternatives to Abortion. They have a state-funded program, $100 million dedicated to this. And there have been results where they have not only in their advertising, but giving options to women who maybe want to have abortion and, and letting them see their other options. And we're willing to support you through the whole entire process. They've seen some success from it. Um, I can't give you the statistics off the top of my head. Louisiana, I think, dedicated one million. Well, maybe our economy is not as good as Texas is. Well, certainly our economy is not as good as Texas is. But things to consider where on the state level, if we're going to put our money where our mouth is, because the church doesn't have that type of money, uh, we can promote it, we can work together, but we've got to do what we can to be able to, um, to curb desire for it and to present other options. Yes, Hugh. Yes, um, do you think Like 
question and all this. But one thing I noticed that wasn't talked about, and I don't know, Josh, you can confirm if they were talked about this year or not, was when you were talking about like reducing the demand for it, my first thought wasn't necessarily all like the practical things. I think something that's just not talked about enough, maybe because I think it's just so big, is sex, like legitimate yeah. formation of sexual, like, we did this year. Yeah, because like, I mean, if the only way you have an abortion is to have sex first. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, so I think part of the argument that I just don't hear enough about whenever these debates do come up is how are schools, families, culture in general. I know that's a big, big thing to tackle, so I'm not saying we're solving one 20 minute period. But like, I was at a, I was at a friend's house the other day and his um, sister and brother-in-law came in and their 16 year old daughter was there and she was showing us her gymnastic move and she was saying about how, she, she was boasting about how she like, like she has 20 crushes on boys in her class. I'm like, you're a 16 year old, how do you know what a crush is? I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like, it, it just kind of blew my mind how like early, like influence, if not, you know, that's not explicitly sexual by any means, but I can see like roots there. So like if that happens at a 16 year old, what happens at a 13 year old, blah, blah, blah. Just, I don't think it's part of the question of like how does, how does Catholic schools talk about it? Just sex in general, sexuality, like desire for well, love. Well, well let me, let me throw this, okay, okay, let me throw this in. Cause it, I think it ties back in, I agree with you a hundred percent. And to a certain degree, I guess we, sort of talked about that last semester in our sexual ethics class, but let's look at it. I mean, for at least 20 years, we've been talking about theology of the body. We've had the sex ed. We've done all the chastity things. You've given out chastity rings. Now, the younger generation is having less sex in general because they're all looking at porn, but, you know, and abortions tend to have dropped off. The numbers have, but... We could talk about it, talk about it, but what's going to be the most effective way of talking about it? Because particularly you're saying, hey, don't have sex to a demographic who tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years of evolution have said, go make babies when you're 16 or 17. But we're telling you, oh, wait till you're 35. It's going to be really hard for them to resist that. I'm not saying that people should start getting married at 16. I'm not saying that at all. But you've got a lot of factors here. Because you can tell people in your mind, oh, I know I'm not supposed to be doing these these things, but you're telling them when culture is telling them everything else and their bodies are telling them something else, it's, it's a really hard argument. I don't know how far we've really come. Yeah. I just have a question. Um, I don't know how strong the advertising agencies have been controlled because in return of the law from the Supreme Court, now does that give the states the power? I have an advertising background, so I know what, like, how it's been controlled. So I don't know is that being controlled in, in the states, or it comes from a federal uh, federal level. Because, like, if the Planned Parenthood, if they're closed in Texas, they have the power, if they have the advertising right, to distribute this content to people there, and they can travel to other states that allow. Them. Oh yeah. So what is? Do you know what the advertising um, control or power is? I, I don't, again, I'm not aware of anything specific, but I don't think that even though you, you can't have access to it in the state, unless there are certain laws, maybe in Texas or elsewhere, where they won't let you advertise, but it's, 
I, I don't see that that's, that's possible to really restrict, particularly with the use of the internet. You're not gonna block certain things that are gonna be really targeted towards the demographic that they think would wanna have an abortion. And particularly now where you have certain states that are becoming sanctuary states for abortion. Well, yeah, let's say that you live in Louisiana, you can have an abortion. Well, you're, it's not gonna stop your, your international corporation you're working for to be able to provide for abortion to buy a plane ticket for you to fly up to New York City. So not only can you advertise, I don't think there are any restrictions on that, but they are finding ways for you to be able to have an abortion to circumvent the laws. Yeah, just like, for example, like in the country where any middle is in Dubai, you can't get one over everybody who get it. It's blocked on all grounds. So either this rules that kind of give the states the power to make certain rules, then those big social media companies are able to block. Because, for example, I'm in New Orleans, I see adverts in New Orleans. I don't see adverts from Nevada or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So there are rules. I'm just wondering if Apart from the Supreme Court overturning, are they given the states the power to actually control the media space? That's why, that's what well, I'm Well, I would imagine states probably do have some control or regions have some control, but then you're going to, you're going to all of a sudden, I mean, this is a lot of what's been going, I don't know all the details, but you hear about it in these courts. Let's say there's a state trying to limit your access to it. Well, Google and Facebook have so much legal power, they're going to crush you. And if it goes to the Supreme Court, you know, all the infighting and the back and forth, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know enough about that, but I can see that it is an area where we may not be aware of it, where there's going, there is, or there would be some contention. I, uh, I think it has to start at the home, uh, the parents, and, you know, I teach uh, uh, at a catechism class on the North Shore. These girls come in with just, like, panties on, you know? <laughs> and it's freezing cold out, and uh, the guys go crazy, uh, the parents, uh, we had a, a family mass, and only two parents showed up to go with their kids to the mass. But they'll come pick them up and take them home. But I think it's a, a, a big issue is the, they're not getting any... No, they're, they're, they're not. I mean, you go, when, you, when you become a priest, and if you become a priest and you go hear confessions at your local Catholic school, oh. your local Catholic school... Less than 20% of those kids go to Mass every Sunday. And if they're not going to Mass every Sunday, you can imagine that they're not praying the rosary together, that they're not getting that adequate formation. And when you start hearing what they're confessing, they're living a very secular existence. So you're right. You're 100% correct. So this even shows even more. Yeah, where does it set the the proper, not only sex ed, but I think human formation, it needs to start in the home. And to be, but then you have, but if it's not starting in the home, even if it is, you have the schools, the media, everything fighting against it. It's going to take a heroic effort and a lot of grace. So you're you're correct. One thing that kind of ties into that, and the, to what you were saying earlier, with needing to be more clear about the goods of this sort of thing, is just emphasizing the good that children can be. Uh, there are a lot of people in my generation who know that they were unwanted, or at best they were accidents, which like it happens. You know, it's, it's really not the end of the world, but to some people it is, and that colors their idea of what like if they ever have kids, like kids are just an inconvenience. Like, that's what they are. That's all they've ever been. Um, and so, yeah, they, they claim this abortion thing as like kind of a solution to that, and that's an easy way to kind of 
We have an anti-child mentality in our culture. I, I agree that children are a burden. They'll inconvenience you from doing what you want to do. You should choose your rights above it. So yeah, so to promote a, a pro-child, the gift of what children are and what they can be, for not only for you as a family, but for the hope of your, the hope of your culture. Yes, brother. Um, somewhat related, somewhat not. Are you, did you decide on your class next semester? Or uh, I'm just curious, do you decide? Well, I think it's been decided for me. <laughs> so I don't think I will be teaching it next semester. Someone else will be teaching it. There was a little discussion of who's going to teach what. And so it appears that I will not be teaching elective next semester, but eventually I might be. Yeah. Because I need to teach something else. And it would be too many classes for me to teach. I just think it'd be really cool to try to think about how to get, you know, either theology of the body or sex ed better. I mean, I know you said it's been around, but it really hasn't been around that great. Um, and my guys seems to move in toward that. But yeah, for me, it's not here. It has to be here. And this place it really is the start of the home. And then if it's not there, it's going to be really hard to get it there. And I think it's happening in Texas. I think that's it's going to change. So as much as it's bad and it's caused, there's negative synergy. There could be a positive, um, you know, play on both sides. This is what I think is happening in Texas, from what I remember hearing, that because it's going to be much more difficult in Texas to access it, then people are thinking twice about choosing the thing that would get them pregnant. Yeah, so I, I think I think you're correct. We're just beginning. We're just beginning to see it. Uh, what the effects are? Oh yeah, I was just gonna say like you see that rhetorically at least. Like right after the, the even before Dobbs, like when the Texas uh, heartbeat uh, bill, whatever it was, when it, whenever it passed, you had this social media like Texas women, let's go on a sex strike, right? Like uh, you know. <laughs> Right, right. So like, like let, let's end hookup culture until they, you know, they, you know, they, 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 they All right, pretty good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, these are all things to discuss. One thing that I think is going to be sort of universally agreed upon, regardless if it's in the family. I do think let's let's get not let's have sex used properly. That we're not going to need abortion, but or needed as much in the eyes of many people. But what though, I mean, I think from the perspective of the church and then the perspective of those who advocate reform of abortion policies, if we're going to make any headway besides promoting children are good, they're a blessing, it's a hope for the culture, what other area do we need to focus on? I've always wanted to start a, a group of high school boys, like they're full of energy, they wanna, where you get, you get like a Chick-fil-A owner, to let them for volunteer hours, they just take shifts. So it's like 10 men share a couple shifts. So if they don't work too much, they're not on their phone, but 
the money, so they're volunteering, but the money goes straight into the coffer that they can track, and, and it's like for, it's for crisis pregnancy. So it's a bunch of men, a bunch of young men who are like working, and they can be proud of it. It's like this feeling of, of almost like a paying forward fatherhood. And just the, just the existence of something like that, where men are aware of the cost of all this and what their responsibilities are, will, I think that would be a good thing. I mean, it could look, it might be a terrible idea the way I set it up, but just something where it's concrete and focused on like paying forward fatherhood, understanding fatherhood. And then the second thing is fighting for more strict paternity test laws. So in other words, if you have sex with a woman, you do not have the right to privacy. Like any way they can get your DNA sample, and prove paternity, there's this, there's some real repercussions because legally making the repercussions for paternity start to equal more maternity would be mm -hmm. a great way of causing people to take stock in that. So, no, you're but, but you're right. The focusing on the men, but in focusing the men, focusing on the women who are pregnant and who maybe are searching for abortions and can have other options. And so I think that's the focus on women and mothers. Um, if we're, we're going to win this, yes, we need men to step up, but it's something that John Paul II mentions in Evangelium Vitae, uh, the role of women. I think it's a powerful witness. I've had an abortion or I regret my abortion, women who have had abortions, but to show when the media is trying to say that you don't care about women and their reproductive rights, we do, but we want what's better. Um, one of the best um, things I've ever read about this is Heather King. I don't know if you know Heather King. She's from L.A. She's written a number of books. Uh, she used to have a blog, I think. And she wrote a book called Poor Baby, which I, I don't even know if you – I think you could just maybe get the e-version. The e but it's about abortion. And she says, here's the real secret sorrow of abortion. The desire to get rid of the unborn is also a desire to get rid of the women – who get pregnant with them. People who don't fit in, people who don't get it, poor people, unlucky people, people who think that if you sleep with a guy, he'll love you, people who think sex is the only thing they have to offer. And she continues, as it is, it's like, we're gonna get rid of the kid, but we're also gonna get rid of these women because they're the real problem. Uh, and so not only to realize that, but also to be very, not only in our messaging, but in our willingness to walk with moms in need. Um, states allocating funds, churches having programs to say like, you know, hey, we're, 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 we, we care about women. You say that we don't care about women, we do care about women. Uh, and particularly here, men stepping up to say, we, do, we care about ourselves, we care about women. Uh, for women who not only before, but also who before the situation, but find themselves in the situation, we're willing to, we're willing to help you, and we're willing to help women who have had abortions. Uh, again, you have healing retreats like Rachel's Vineyard. John Paul II talks about it in Evangelium Vitae, number 99. Pope Francis allowing the priest to lift that penalty of excommunication, which I think most people who choose abortions don't even realize all of that. Um, but yeah, the message of mercy. As much as like this is a bad thing, we realize there's either ignorance or something terrible that drove you to this. We're going to show you mercy. Uh, and, and, you know, in the times that I've encountered women who have had abortions uh, and to be able to say, hey, you're forgiven. The Lord shows you that mercy. 
uh, and to, to be involved in the Rachel's Vineyard retreats. It's really been a powerful, um, powerful message. One of the biggest powerful messages I've seen is from people whose siblings have been aborted. Um, and to say, like, I want to speak on behalf of someone who lost a sibling to abortion. Um, you have these ways of phrasing it uh, and promoting it. The human ecology argument, which, of course, both Francis and uh, Benedict talked about, um, you know, it, it's going to take some creative thinking on how to do this. And I think a lot of prayer. Um, but I think the more that we can promote proper family, which would mean responsible parenthood, proper use of sex, but also for the women who have had chosen abortions to show mercy to them, gradually we're going to make headway. But I think a lot of it is going to be what are we going to do to reduce the demands for abortion? Um, and what are the thoughts do you all think? Uh, any ideas? Yes. Let's okay. um, so I help with Louisiana Right to Life. Like I'm on their gala committee. They do like a big fancy party every year to raise a ton of money and awareness um, for Louisiana Right to Life. And it's been a couple of years that I've been helping out with that. And I, I guess I'm in a culture where my kids go to Catholic schools, and sometimes you sort of assume people are pro-life, especially in the state of Louisiana and in New Orleans. You'll kind of be like, do you want to buy a table? Do you want to buy a ticket? It's not really something you get too much pushback on like mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the social circles of the Catholic schools and stuff. And um, so they gave me a list of people to call, and they said, well, can you call other churches that aren't stepping up? Like there were certain churches in our archdiocese who were buying tables, like the church would buy a table and fill it with people. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I started calling some other ones. and Other Catholic churches, you mean? Catholic churches. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's not a Catholic organization. Louisiana Rights yeah. Life is not. So they had other people calling other organizations, you know, structures. But I was asked to call some of the Catholic churches. And I was surprised how many of them just were like, no, it's just not something that we feel comfortable putting our name on. <laughs> and it's expensive, but it was also... I, so I had explained the structure, like at my church, we don't have a budget for that. We can't pay $2,000 just, you know, for a table. And I was like, but what we do is we try to get interested parishioners who do have a little bit of extra money and that they will put in under the name of St. Pius X so that it looks like our church is sponsoring this and we can kind of more broadly say that we support it. So then I went back to Louisiana Rights Life. I told them what happened and they were like, tell them they have a free table. Call them back and see if they'll just take the table for and I noticed that it was in African American neighborhoods. They were like, we can't even fill a table. Like they, they wouldn't publicly sit at a table that said they were supporting all these rights. And I, I was really surprised by it. I mean, Angie Thomas was the one that I was working oh, with. Yeah. And Angie was like, it was the first time that I had encountered the cultural difference, really. And she was like, you're going to hit this. And it's showing mercy is so important, like what you were just saying. And, but the reality is there, the, uh, it really is like a neighborhood thing. And so with the churches in certain neighborhoods, they were afraid that it was going to come across that they were judging their mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And they very, very loudly and boldly came out shouting about being pro-life. I, I was really surprised. Yeah. Because it became not about money. They were like, tell them the table's free. Mm-hmm. And they can just invite people to come sit and put their name on it. 
you know, I think you're right when it comes to different demographics. Yep. There are ideas, uh, preconceptions, things that we may not be aware of that we have to sort of be sensitive to. Um, you know, I'll, I'll share the story. Years ago, um, both my associate or my vicar and I, who is African-American, decided to preach on abortion and race in the parish. Um, it was a parish that was mixed, um, both uh, whites and, and, and blacks. And we both gave more or less the same homily. I think I'm a better preacher than he is. But <laughs> anyhow, there were some people who were really angry at me. Very angry at me, not him. And one of them confronted me and I said, I, I don't get it. He preached the same homily that I did. And, and she's like, well, you were calling us stupid. No, I wasn't at all. And so I remember we got together, all, all of us together, the, 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 my associate, myself, and then the individuals who were really good. And we were great friends. It's like, we're all in this together. Um, but yet it really made me realize how, like, okay, I'm saying something, which is true, but the way it, it can be perceived. And so that's why I think you know, particularly in poor minority communities, to have the courage it takes to stand up and say, no, you know, this is a bad thing. So it kind of connected to what you said. Um, now, granted, you know, she admitted, yeah, Father, if you wouldn't have been white, I, I, would, I would have listened to you. Because no one had a problem with what he said. And so there is, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody, it's just the reality. So how we're gonna speak about these things, how we're gonna market these things, uh, and I think that's where, like, hey, regardless if it's demographics, poverty, race, Catholic, non-Catholic, man, we, we got to be in this together. we got to see this is not a good thing and to be able to rely on the spirit, to realize that this is spiritual warfare, but to be able to, to make headway moving forward. So we're going to come. Please do your best to read some of the documentation for Friday. We're talking about rape protocol and Plan B. One of the things I put as required reading was this Vatican document from 2000. Uh, I'm going to probably knock that out of required reading, and I'll explain why. Uh, because since 2000, we've had a much better understanding of how Plan B works. Uh, I, I'm, it's a very short document, but I don't want to say it's not relevant today. It still is. But because of the 20, past 20, 25 years, the way that we understand how these drugs work, has kind of changed our opinion of things. I, I probably should get a doctor to come make, explain a lot of these different nuances. Maybe I'll get Deacon Davis to come in. He will explain. Um, but it should be a, a good discussion um, because it's very, very complicated, and we'll do our best to understand it. So glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 